Virginia Woolf, Introduction to Mrs. Dalloway. It is hard to overstate the importance of Virginia Woolf to 20th century literature. She wrote a diary that runs to some 30 volumes, numerous essays, reviews, and books on literature, society, war, and gender politics, and novels and short stories that are some of the best examples of the movement known as literary modernism. Wolf was born into a very literary family on both sides, and her forebears include novelists, biographers, philosophers, editors, and publishers. As a woman of her times, she was not educated formally, but she was very widely read and she wrote from an early age. She married Leonard Wolfe in 1912, and her husband encouraged her writing career. The two founded the Hogarth Press, which published not only her own writing, but the work of James Joyce and T.S. Eliot as well. Virginia Woolf experienced many personal tragedies, including the loss of her mother when she was 13, which triggered the first of her mental breakdowns, the deaths of her half-sister two years later, her father when she was 22, and a brother two years after that. She suffered depression and breakdowns at intervals throughout her life, often after she completed a novel. In fact, it was the sense that another episode of depression was coming on, perhaps fueled by dread of another war and fears of being a burden to her husband that led to her drowning herself in 1941. Before we begin her novel, I want to look at one of her most famous nonfiction books called A Room of One's Own, published in 1929 and known as a milestone of feminist literary criticism. Her most famous incident from which the book takes its title imagines what would have happened if William Shakespeare had had a sister, equal in literary talent, but because of the constraints upon women, doomed to a far different fate. This selection comes from the beginning of chapter three of A Room of One's Own. It would have been impossible completely and entirely for any woman to have written the plays of Shakespeare in the age of Shakespeare. Let me imagine, since facts are so hard to come by, what would have happened had Shakespeare had a wonderfully gifted sister called Judith, let us say. Shakespeare himself went, very probably, his mother was an heiress, to the grammar school where he may have learnt Latin, Ovid, Virgil, and Horace, and the elements of grammar and logic. He was, it is well known, a wild boy who poached rabbits, perhaps shot a deer, and had rather sooner than he should have done to marry a woman in the neighborhood who bore him a child rather quicker than was right. That escapade sent him to seek his fortune in London. He had, it seemed, a taste for the theater. He began by holding horses at the stage door. Very soon he got work in the theater, became a successful actor, and lived at the hub of the universe, meeting everybody, knowing everybody, practicing his art on the boards, exercising his wits on the streets, and even getting access to the palace of the queen. Meanwhile, his extraordinarily gifted sister, let us suppose, remained at home. She was as adventurous, as imaginative, as agog to see the world as he was, 
but she was not sent to school. She had no chance of learning grammar and logic, let alone of reading Horace and Virgil. She picked up a book now and then, one of her brothers, perhaps, and read a few pages. But then her parents came in and told her to mend the stockings or mind the stew and not moon about with books and papers. They would have spoken sharply but kindly, for they were substantial people who knew the conditions of life for a woman and loved their daughter. Indeed, more likely than not, she was the apple of her father's eye. Perhaps she scribbled some pages up in an apple loft on the sly, but was careful to hide them or set fire to them. Soon, however, before she was out of her teens, she was to be betrothed to the son of a neighboring wool stapler. She cried out that marriage was hateful to her, and for this she was severely beaten by her father. Then he ceased to scold her. He begged her instead not to hurt him, not to shame him in this matter of her marriage. He would give her a chain of beads or a fine petticoat, he said, and there were tears in his eyes. How could she disobey him? How could she break his heart? The force of her own gift alone drove her to it. She made up a small parcel of her belongings, let herself down by a rope one summer's night, and took the road to London. She was not seventeen. The birds that sang in the hedge were not more musical than she was. She had the quickest fancy a gift like her brother's, for the tune of words. Like him, she had a taste for the theater. She stood at the stage door. She wanted to act, she said. Men laughed in her face. The manager, a fat, loose-lipped man, guffawed. He bellowed something about poodles dancing and women acting. No woman, he said, could possibly be an actress. He hinted, you can imagine what. She could get no training in her craft. Could she even seek her dinner in a tavern or roam the streets at midnight? Yet her genius was for fiction and lusted to feed abundantly upon the lives of men and women and the study of their ways. At last, for she was very young, oddly like Shakespeare the poet in her face, with the same gray eyes and rounded brows, at last Nick Green, the actor-manager, took pity on her. She found herself with child by that gentleman, and so... Who shall measure the heat and violence of the poet's heart when caught and tangled in a woman's body, killed herself one winter's night, and lies buried at some crossroads where the omnibuses now stop outside the elephant and castle? That, more or less, is how the story would run, I think, if a woman in Shakespeare's day had had Shakespeare's genius. End quote. A little further, in chapter 4 of A Room of One's Own, we find this passage. It is obvious that the values of women differ very often from the values which have been made by the other sex. Naturally, this is so. Yet, it is the masculine values that prevail. Speaking crudely, football and sport are important. The worship of fashion, the buying of clothes, trivial. And these values are inevitably transferred from life to fiction. This is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. A scene in a battlefield is more important than a scene in a shop. Everywhere, and much more subtly, the difference of value persists. End quote. 
Mrs. Dalloway, published in 1925, really exemplifies this opposition because Wolfe has written a book about the day of a dinner party, the kind of subject that in the masculine literary world would have been seen as marginal, not important. But here Wolfe makes this marginal world central.